Getting this to go to record in case I forget, in case we have a IT issue. All right, so what makes Christianity unique from all other religions? That's a good question. It's a profound question. And the prevailing narrative in today's time is that all religions are fundamentally the same. They're only superficially different. And let me tell you, as someone who has studied philosophy and studied world religions, I can assure you the opposite is actually true. At best, they are superficially the same. They are fundamentally different. But I don't want to just quote a philosopher or even myself. Now, I think the satirist Steve Turner worded it perfectly when he said in his work, The Creed, he said this, We believe that all religions are the same, at least the ones we read were. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. Superficial differences, right? <laughs> no, I think that any objective person who's paying attention, no, religion is not simply about love and goodness. There are fundamental differences between them when you view it as a whole. All of the things that each of these worldviews proclaimed. They can't all be true. The question is, what is true? What is, uh, and furthermore, what makes them unique? Why is Christianity so special? Why are you crazy people out, out here on the front lawn of a church on this Sunday morning? What has drawn us to this? Well, I think the best answer came from C.S. Lewis. He was asked this very same question himself a number of years ago, asking what makes Christianity unique? And he had the best answer I've ever heard. He said, without batting an eye, without returning to his office and reading through a bunch of textbooks, he immediately answered, well, that's easy. Grace. Grace is what makes Christianity unique. God's unearned and unmerited favor. And he is 100% right when he said that. The Bible uniquely describes a God who loves you right now, having done you done nothing to earn it. He already loves you and cares for you right now. Every other religion can be accurately described as us reaching with all that we have to the heavens, hoping to obtain whatever their other view is of the afterlife, of eternity, of heaven, of nirvana, of whatever it is that they are attempting to gain on the other side reaching, hoping, vainly, without any scoreboard, by the way, telling them how close they are to achieving their final goal. But Christianity alone shows a God who is reaching down. God who is reaching down to offer us a hand, to pull us up to where he is on the other side. This is a unique Christian truth, a unique comfort that is only proclaimed in the, in the Holy Bible, in the scriptures. Furthermore, other religions teach of an impersonal God who is either mechanical in their actions or is an impersonal force or is just so far away and he doesn't, he's not really interested in you. He's not really, he doesn't notice what you're doing. But that's not what I see when I open up the Bible. I see a God who loves you and wants to show grace to you. And I'm sure that you guys have noticed that 
We don't live in a society that thrives on grace anymore, do we? I mean, you look at the news, you look at the streets, you have your inter- your interactions when ordering a coffee at your favorite place to pick it up in the morning. It's not always graceful or forgiving. And I've noticed, maybe you guys have too, a correlation between the decline in, Christ- in cultural Christianity and grace in the common world that we see around us. In other words, you know, as... The number of people who profess to be Christians has declined. So is the overall forgiveness and grace that we see in our world today. It seems harsher, doesn't it? Some of you who've been around a little bit longer than I have have maybe have noticed a trend. Look back on a day where people were kinder in the streets. People were kinder in their interactions with one another. But rather, what is the buzzword of the day? Cancel culture, people are calling it. Cancel culture. And if, if that's a, a word that you haven't heard before, here's what I mean. If you have posted something 15 years ago online, somewhere people can find, that was totally not even controversial 15 years ago, but doesn't meet today's standards for righteousness or goodness, you could lose your job. You could be fired. You could be blacklisted from your industry and never work again in certain industries. Have your entire life and legacy tarnished over a Facebook post 15 years ago. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's interesting that even our founding fathers are being canceled these days. Libraries are being renamed. Um, schools are being renamed. Streets are being renamed. You won't see any new streets being named Jefferson Avenue, Washington Avenue even though they were in history, throughout history. Being renamed because of sins committed hundreds of years ago. Look, I'm, I'm not naive here. I don't want to make any excuses for sins that, were, that they did commit. But I do fear now for how your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren are going to view us. How we're going to be viewed. How we're going to be perceived for our stances on the view of cultural sins today. What things are we doing today that are going to be unacceptable 20 years from now, 100 years from now, even five years from now? Things are moving so quickly. Will they show us the forgiveness and grace that we would hope that we would show others? Or will we be judged only by the worst thing we ever said or ever did? That just so happened to be recorded online. I certainly hope not. I once heard of a prison inmate that described their experience as being defined every day of their life singularly to everyone that they met only by the worst thing that they ever did. Could you imagine that? The weight of that condemnation on you every day. As uncomfortable as that is as a thought, you know, we're beginning to shape society that way, aren't we? And we're encouraging a culture, a a generation coming up that are encouraged to just be better at hiding their sins rather than confessing them, expecting forgiveness. I think we've lost something as a culture. Is this what we really want? And with that in mind, I find it interesting that a related word of today, another related buzzword is justice. Justice. And that's interesting, actually, because justice is a biblical word. 
It simply means to do what is right. I think people today make the mistake of adding words to the word justice because the minute that you add anything to justice, it's no longer true justice. But that's another story. But it seems like every organization today is crawling out for justice. Even our own hearts call out for justice. People are marching in the streets for social justice, for racial justice. Goodness, even climate justice is a thing now. Did you know that? Google that when you get home. It's quite interesting. But the problem is that justice, while virtuous of itself, is not what we need. Justice is not what we need. Because even though our hearts call out for a good thing, if God were to give us all justice, if God were to settle all accounts today and justice is served, we'll all be dead. That's how justice works. That is how what a fair rendering of justice would look like. A promise as early as the old, as, as old as the earth itself is where God told Adam, if you sin, you shall surely die. That was that, and being fair, being just would be to allow him and indeed all of us to die. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. In other words, our sins have earned us a debt that must be paid for in death. So when we're calling out for justice, we're calling out, we're calling out for judgment. Certainly upon ourselves even as well. And suddenly, as we consider what true justice looks like, we start thinking of some of these people marching on the streets. And we start to think of it a little bit differently. Perhaps another, another scripture comes to mind. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. They're asking for something I don't think they are ready for the answer for. That's bad news. Justice would be bad news. And the need for a perfect and holy God to render justice on sinful, broken people like ourselves, that's not good news. That's bad news. How are we going to resolve these conflicting needs? Our hearts do rightly call out for justice, but receiving justice would mean condemnation for me also. How do I possibly reconcile both justice and mercy, which are contradictory terms? It turns out that there's only one place where justice and mercy meet. In fact, justice, mercy, and grace meet that in a non-contradictory way. Where justice, getting what I deserve, mercy, withholding what I deserve, and grace, a gift that I do not deserve. These three converge singularly and only on the cross of Jesus Christ. Solely there, because on there, the justice that we long for was satisfied. Where the sins of the world, including my own, were nailed not to my own hands, but into his. Into the hands of Jesus Christ and into his feet. And so because he received my justice, my debt has been paid. And I have received his mercy, his forgiveness. As one modern hymn writer put it, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is justified to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. That if you believe what Jesus did on the cross for you, 
When God himself looked upon Jesus on the cross, he saw your sins being paid for. Saw them being reconciled, the debt being wiped clean. And now when he looks upon you now, he doesn't see you for the sins that you have done. He doesn't hold that against you. Right now, when he looks upon you, he sees the righteousness of Christ in you. He sees your debt wiped clean from the books. And he sees Christ's righteousness imputed or given to you as a gift. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So my debt has been paid. I've received his mercy. And because now when God looks upon me, he doesn't see my sins, but he sees Christ's righteousness in me. I've received his grace. So now I, not through my own merit, not through my own good works, I, have now, I can now enter into eternal life. Because it has been, not, not just has my debt been paid for, but my reaching up as well has been earned through the cross, through this gift of righteousness that God has given me. So now all who repent, all who turn from their sins and commit to following Christ can receive this infinite gift of grace. But let me step back for a second. Do you guys sometimes forget how much God loves you? I sometimes do. I think we all do. We need to remember that God is not some far off, distant God who doesn't know you, doesn't care about you, but a God who is near. And rather, and even more so, when I look to the cross, I see how much God loves me. I see how much he cares for me. I see the length he is willing to go to redeem me. Because John 15 verse 13 says, true love has none greater than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. But just how forgiven are we? What is the extent of God's forgiveness for us? Literally every week, including this one, through some ministries I'm involved in, I see people saying things like, oh, I don't know. I think I, think I fell out of God's favor. I think I sinned one too many times. I don't know if you can forgive one more relapse into this other sin that I'm struggling with. And I've met people who have said to my face, oh, John, I can't even walk into a church building. Don't you know what I've done? God would strike me dead if I entered into a church building. Maybe that's why some of you guys joined the outside service. <laughs> but I think that's the wrong question to ask. You know, oh, if I, have I done too much? Can God still forgive me? No. It comes down to this. If Jesus died for me, how much was Jesus's life worth? How much worth is the son of God, the sinless son of God? Is his sacrifice enough to cover seven of my sins? 490 of my sins? As gracious as that sounds, that'll only get me through a year. Or an infinite amount. Let's cut to the chase, guys. An infinite Savior, an infinite and infinitely holy God is worth an infinite amount to cover your sins on his behalf. Our first reading further gave us a clue by saying how much God has removed our sins from us. In Psalm 103, 
favorite verse of mine, one of my favorite Psalms in all of Scripture, where he said that God has removed our sins as far as the, the east is from the west. Exactly. I love so much how that is worded. It is worded so perfectly. No, I have a globe in my house that I like to show, that I like to use to teach my kids. And, yeah, I got one of them messing with me right now. (laughs) You know exactly which one I'm talking about then. You can tell everybody what I'm talking about. I can point to the furthest north points. I can come from the bottom and point to you the furthest south points. Now, if I really want to mess with them, and now they're going to know my secret, so Madison is between us, okay? What would happen if I were to ask them, show me the furthest east points? They can't do it. And then being honest, kids, they'd look for it and be like, is there anything on here that'll show me? And like, I don't know, it just seems to keep going. Which is exactly right. There is no furthest point east. It is infinite. And the same thing with the west. It is impossible. You can start walking, I believe it's roughly that way east. And with the assistance of a couple of boats, you can travel east for the rest of your life. And travel east for the rest of your life for a thousand lifetimes and never arrive at the furthest point east. It is an infinite distance on this earth. And the same with the west. It is infinitely going in that direction. There is no furthest point. Which is such a profound truth when we consider that is how far he has removed your sins from you. If you are in Christ, he has removed your sins as far as infinity is from infinity. Wow! That is a profound thought when you really stop and think about it. That is some radical grace. You know, a favorite scripture of mine is from Luke 23, talking about the thief on the cross. A man who was sentenced to death as a criminal. In the middle of servicing his punishment on the cross as he encounters Jesus and has what could be called a deathbed conversion. Never having a chance to attend church. Never getting a chance to come down and get baptized. But what did Jesus say to him? Truly, truly, I say unto you, today you will be with me in paradise. That is fabulous news. That the, and that is the power of the gospel, able to transform the identity of a condemned criminal, changing his identity from a condemned criminal into a saint in mere minutes. In mere moments, he is reconciled to a holy and perfect God. His slate is wiped clean. How's that for good news this morning, church? That is fabulous news because that gives hope for me. That gives hope for the person who thinks they've gone too far. The person who thinks, oh, they can't enter a building like the one behind me because I've just done too much. I've gone too far. No, the Bible says that is not true in the least. Because our security isn't rooted or grounded in your goodness or mine, but Christ's completed work upon the cross. So no, there is no sin that you have could possibly commit that Jesus is unable to forgive. As Romans 8 says, there is nothing in all creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So let me sir, come back to an earlier point. No other religion or worldview offers this. This is a uniquely Christian idea. Speaking facts for a moment, in Islam, you must die with more good deeds than bad deeds to be accepted into their version of heaven. In Buddhism, you have to work your whole life to obtain what they call nirvana. In Hinduism, you need to work your whole life to pay off your karma debt. It's all working and hoping and having no assurance. Only in Christ has he paid your debt for you. This marvelous good word, this marvelous good news. And in light of this amazing grace that we are considering this morning, what does that mean for me today? Whether it is you, whether you are hearing this for the first time or whether you've grown up in church your whole life, what does this mean for me today? Well, that's where we come back to our gospel reading today. From Luke 7, the woman who was worshiping at the feet of Jesus, worshiping Christ at his feet. And let me tell you, that is the proper response to seeing God's amazing and incomprehensible grace. Maybe not her literal posture at his feet, but that is the proper posture of the heart that God calls us to have. The only proper response to the gospel and Christ doing all this for you is the, um, is to have just unceasing passionate worship and gratitude. One that comes from the depths of the heart to say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for what you have done for me. Thank you for this grace that you have shown me. And let me just show my gratitude by laying myself at your feet. Saying, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for this infinite forgiveness. Thank you for this grace of eternal life, none of which I have earned, all of which I'm utterly unworthy of. But that's exactly what he calls us to recognize, to recognize the depth that we have been forgiven and to step into the new creation that he has called us to be. You know, some worldviews will claim that you need to clean yourself up before coming to Christ or before attending a service like this one. You know, the opposite is true in Christ. <laughs> that would be like, you know, because many of you guys know I had back surgery two, about two years ago. And that would have been like telling my back surgeon that I'll, I'll see you when I can start walking better. Does that make sense to any of you guys? <laughs> no, we don't see a surgeon to after we fix our problem. We see the surgeon to fix the problem. And that's exactly why we come to Christ. We come to him to fix the problem. We go to be fixed and then we learn how to walk again. As certainly I did. No, come to the Savior today. Lay yourself at his feet. Let him wash you perfectly clean of every sin you have ever committed, past, present, and future. And then walk with him as we learn the right path with him by our side. And, you know, as I look out here onto Broadway, look behind me, and I just start thinking about this world around me, you know, prayerfully someday, the world will re-embrace this truth that it so needs to see. To embrace this message of grace and allow it to permeate our culture as it so desperately needs. 
But until then, let us begin with the church. Let us begin by being a forgiving and graceful people right here today. Let us be a light here in South Amboy that embodies these things so that others will see it. So that when they see you, not only can they figure out intellectually that Christianity is unique, but they would see in you and in your life a changed life, a changed heart. You forgive differently than other people do. You show grace differently than other people do. And they will know there must be something different about you. Is it something about that place on Broadway that's changing you? It's a little higher than that, though. Let us be a people who are known for forgiving others the way that we have been forgiven. And just one last point, that doesn't mean ignoring or, God forbid, celebrating other people's sins. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, the most unloving, that's one of the most unloving things you can do to let somebody continue in sin or not show them the way to forgiveness and grace, to show them how you found it is what I'm talking about. What is loving is to recognize that we are all poor beggars at the foot of God's door. We all need his forgiveness and grace. I am no better than someone whose sins might look differently than mine. I too am bankrupt of my own righteousness. I just want to tell my fellow beggars where I found bread. That's the point. So let us be a place where the outcasts, the hurting, those who feel like they have blown it, and the people whose sins, again, look different than mine, can find comfort and healing at where we found comfort and healing, at the cross of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let us.